Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thanks for joining us for another installment of Mortification of Spin. We are so glad you chose to be with us today. Today is a very special day because we actually talked someone in to coming back on this program a second time, which is typically <laughs> very, very difficult for us. So I don't know if that says something about us or something about our guest, but I like our guest. And so I'm thinking that what he's doing here is actually very wise and perhaps set a trend uh, for past guests on mortification of spin. Our guest today, and we are very happy to have him back, is Kelly Capick. Dr. Capick is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College which is located in a beautiful place uh, overlooking Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's on Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It is the four-year college of the Presbyterian Church in America. And he is also author and editor of a number of excellent books that you ought to get your hands on, one of which we will be giving away at the end of the program. Another one is his brand new book called Embodied Hope, which we're going to be talking about in just a moment. But uh, Kelly, thank you so much for coming back on with us. Uh, I'm kind of thinking I should say it's good to be here. It's almost like sometimes you thank God for the food and think you should wait till after the meal. I tell you what, Kelly, this is, this is going to do wonders for your mental and spiritual health and for your career. You just, you just sit back and watch. But, but before we get to the serious stuff, Amy has been doing a little bit of research. Mm -hmm. Uh, She has gotten some information from some former students that she would like to share. Oh no. Yeah. Right. So, so two, I guess I could say young women who go to um, our church, they have little kids, loved Covenant College. They talk about it all the time. They try to get all the the youth to go to Covenant. And whenever they say what schools they're applying to, they're like, well, you're spelling that wrong. And, And then they spell out Covenant. But one of their favorite professors was... Professor Capic, and um, apparently, you know, some of the women had quite a crush on you. Oh, you were like the cute professor, but um, well, I know what that's I like. Were I swear? Been here a long time now. <laughs> <laughs> so I texted them both yesterday. I was like, "Hey, we're interviewing Kelly Capic again. You got any dirt I can unload on him?" And so the one said, "Well, he once hit me with a chalkboard eraser by hurling it across the room because I was talking." Nice. <laughs> and then the other one said, "Either she was talking or sleeping." <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one said she remembers you jumping on a piano during a Christology class and asking, why wasn't Jesus a woman? <laughs> I they <exactly> remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Which she said was one of her favorite classes because now mm-hmm. she loves the book of Hebrews because of your Christology class. That's great. Well, that's good to know. I mean, neither one of those were all that embarrassing. That's good. Uh, we can live with those. Yeah, we, can, we, can, we can live with those. Well, um, like a Carl story or anything. Oh, my, my favorite story is being with Kelly in Amsterdam last year, and the restaurant we were in burned down while we were there. <laughs> we, we ended up. I think we're joking. Oh, uh, we heroically helped the Amsterdam Fire Brigade clear the street so they could get their engines in, and then sought out our waitress and paid the bill and gave her a. T- 
tip. Right. <laughs> Putting our own lives at tremendous risk just to make sure that we were true gentlemen. See, that's what Presbyterians do. A Baptist yeah. would have never done that. <laughs> Bless you guys. All right. I think it was more Carl than me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Kelly, your, your latest book is called Embodied Hope. The subtitle is A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. I was given a copy a little over a week ago, and uh, it's been a real blessing to read. I've appreciated it very much. And I wonder if if you would mind just kind of briefly telling the folks listening, uh, what was the occasion for your writing this book? Just a little bit about your story and uh, how pain has affected your own household. Sure. I'll try and keep it keep it brief. But the basic outline is, you know, every family, every individual if they've lived long enough, deals with some form of pain and suffering, and it comes to us in different forms. In our case, my wife and I, in 2008, she was diagnosed with a form of breast cancer that normally only hits women who are much, much older, more like in their 70s, and she was in her 30s at the time. So we went through cancer, and about a year and a half later, a year later, she was declared cancer-free, and we were very thankful for that. And really thank God for bringing us through a hard time and uh, wrestling through that and thought, well, that, that was the hard thing. But then in 2010, again, a longer story short, my, my wife was working for an international rehabilitation agency called Medair. And it was shortly after the Haiti earthquake. And she was meeting with some pastors, exploring the idea of church planning in Haiti. And she called me from the side of the road after her meeting and said she she was driving our stick shift and said she wasn't sure she could get home because her leg wasn't responding properly. It was just out of nowhere. And that just marked the beginning of what became chronic pain for her, kind of a form of polyneuropathy that developed through the years and has started in her hands and legs and moved up and uh, eventually um, took us all the way to the Mayo Clinic where they gave us two diagnoses of two things she's dealing with. And one is... Um, it's called erythromyalgia or man on fire disease. And anyway, so, so now there's not a day that goes by that she doesn't deal with very significant physical pain. And so this is stuff we've been dealing with. And she's a very able person, very bright person. And she does not like to talk about these things. Uh, this is part of us wrestling through, should we do the book? And there's a story to that and only did it after her encouragement um, and after kind of a grant opened up to have the space for our family to relocate for six months and start to think about it. But all that to say, that remains part of our daily life. So. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you for writing the book and thank you to your wife for uh, participating in that and encouraging you to do it. I, I, I think uh, you've done God's people a service in, uh, in bringing this to us. And, and just briefly, you're very clear in the opening of the book that, that the audience for this book, because when you talk about suffering, it's a very, very broad category. Mm -hmm. You make it very clear, I think, helpfully so, that you're talking about Christians who suffer, yeah. uh, specifically suffering like the suffering that comes from illness, chronic pain, that that sort of thing. Not the mm -hmm. kind of suffering, well, uh, somebody committed adultery and they suffer as the result. We, we pretty much know why that happens, but you're dealing with the kind of suffering that the Christian looks up and really wonders, why is this happening to me? Yeah, I'm interested there are a couple of reasons I tried to focus it. One is I actually think Christians have some particular questions and the questions aren't, even though sometimes the words say, 
does God really exist? I can't believe this is happening. I actually think when you probe deeper, what Christians and others are commonly really asking is, is God good? Right. Can mm-hmm. he be trusted? And that's really my pastoral concern. And then questions about suffering and evil go a thousand directions. So I wanted to focus on physical pain and suffering, particularly prolonged, but it relates to all kinds. But in that, my hope is, and what I've heard back from others, is it really does still relate if you've been abused as a child Mm. or other forms of suffering. I I still think you can relate. But part of the reason to focus on physical suffering is it, it really opened up for me the gospel, in particular, thinking about the incarnation and the significance of God and his son becoming man. And so there, there is real purpose in exploring it this way. So when you say people inside are really deeply wondering, is God good? It reminded me too of Christopher Ashe's um, commentary on Job, where he kind of opens up with the question, do we live in a well-run world? Mm. And I think, yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, it's like, is God good or, or maybe even inept? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and part of my concern is that because that question is so painful even to voice, the Christian instinct is to immediately try and answer yes. Mm-hmm. And without knowing it, they very often end up justifying evil. Mm. Um, and that's not something we want to do. Yeah. So we have to navigate a strong affirmation of the sovereignty of God. While at the same time, I come from the Reformed tradition, mm-hmm. at the same time, the main part of the Reformed tradition clearly and explicitly denies that God is the author of evil. Right. And I do think in con- certain forms of contemporary Reformed theology, there is a slipping into affirming that God is the author of evil mm-hmm. in ways I find are deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Could you give an example of that, Kelly? Maybe, maybe not name it. Maybe <laughs> you don't have to name, 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 name a name, but give us an example am, of how that argument might yeah. flow. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm not Carl, so I'm not that brave, but I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take a lot of imagination. Right. I, well, I'll, I'll give you examples that I see all the time that you don't have to put with any particular names. Uh, I deal with students. Students mean well, they learn about the sovereignty of God, and then they'll be, it'll be two in the morning and they're dealing with a roommate, and it comes out that when they were a child, they were sexually abused. Yeah. And a well-meaning classmate might say, well, God is sovereign, and He um, He's doing good, and He and and they start to talk, and it whether or not they use the words, what the person hears is, God did that to you, right? Hmm. And without knowing it, they have just made God the author of evil. They have done great violence in that situation, in my opinion, and. So I try and encourage students to realize if God is sovereign. But if you want to understand the sovereignty of God, at least, and Timothy George makes this wonderful comment about the reformers, you know, the reformers concretize the sovereignty of God by constantly moving from speculation to the cross of Christ. Mm. And so what I would say is the way that works out pastorally is in that room when the, when the person is telling you their story, you don't go into the abstract philosophical mathematical equation. You say, you want to know what God thinks about what happened to you? Let me take you to a bleeding and dying Savior. Mm. And only in his blood can you understand. Now he rises. 
But if you want to know what he thinks about it, he thinks it's so horrific he had to enter into death for it, that kind of thing. Yeah, that reminds me of, I know that Elihu in the book of Job is a, it's a complicated interpretive issues there, but it strikes me that Elihu, when you read his speeches in Job, is correct by mm. and large, but no human compassion for the right. suffering yep. of Job. So when the Lord comes in and intervenes at the end of Job, Elihu isn't explicitly criticized, but the Lord still needs to come in and say something because Elihu has not said the last word. And I've, I've always found it compelling, the arguments to say the problem with Elihu is he gives the kind of answer that you've just said, that's sort of the ball, well, God is sovereign, therefore it must be good. And that's not an adequate response right. to Job's suffering and therefore not a response to, to the suffering of, of Tabitha, your wife, or, or people we may come across who are suffering on a daily basis. Yeah, and we just end up saying things we're not in a position to say. And I want to return to Job in a second. But, for example, it's common for someone to say, well, your child's suffering leukemia, but maybe a nurse will become a Christian right. in the process. Yeah. Or maybe something like that. And you want to say, well, what happens if my child dies? That nurse who became a Christian two years later abandons the faith. Yeah. Or the church renewal that was brought through this dwindles six months later. Right. In other words, we don't actually know. So we need to be more comfortable. And I think part of what's amazing with Job, there's some material about this in the, in the book, but in the end, God doesn't answer Job's questions. And I make an argument there drawing on the scholar T.C. Ham that you don't have to read Job as the end of Job as God being cruel to Job. He's being firm. He's saying, I'm the creator and you're a creation. You don't know everything. But actually, there's tons of evidence to say he's not being mean. Because at the end, how God treats Job, how James says Job is an, a model, and God actually gives his name Yahweh again at the end of the book. So it's very interesting how we sometimes mess that up a little bit. So God is, is clearly saying, Job, you're not, you're not God, so you weren't there, you don't know everything. But he doesn't answer his questions until he does. <laughs> and the way God answers Job's question and questions is not ultimately by giving him sentences right but it's when he comes in his son and that the son of god becomes job and he suffers unto death in our place that's god's final answer to job in my opinion mm. that's good kelly you, you have a lot of good things to say about lament in this book and the church's practice of of lamentation i want to kind of ask you two things first of all Tell our listeners just briefly, what do we mean when we say lament? And then I've got a follow-up to that. Yeah, lament is really in some ways difficult to describe because even biblically, it takes all kinds of forms. It can take the form of questioning God. It can take the form of expressing frustrations. You know, where are you, God? Are you absent? Complaints? Despair? All of those kinds of things. And interestingly enough, sometimes it seems that in lament, you don't have to have your theology right. <laughs> you know, part of what happens in lament is we say things that are, in a sense, theologically questionable. Right. And that's why some people confuse. They think if you're lamenting, you don't believe in God. Mm. You know, the only one you get really angry at is the one you believe who's there. <laughs> right. 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 Otherwise, you're wasting your breath. So, there's kind of some short-sightedness about thinking through that. Instead of constantly trying to correct people's theology when they're lamenting, 
we take him to the God who can absorb that lament. And then like the psalmist can ultimately say, you know, ultimately be there. Right. You, uh, you say some really helpful things about how the church needs to do a better job of making space for people to lament, of bringing lament back into the worship of the church. And of course, God's given us rich language for lament in the scriptures themselves, particularly the Psalms. You make a, um, a comment on page 31. You say, if, if we do not restore space for lament in our individual and corporate church life, our suffering will drive us not only away from others, but away from God himself. And I, I couldn't agree more. I, I've seen that happen. So my question is, what might that look like for the church to incorporate lament into its life? That's a great question. I think it depends on the audience you're talking to. I'm not a Psalms only person, right? but I'm from a tradition that has some that are in that. And only after I wrote the book did I later think, oh, wow, you could use that to make a pretty strong case yeah. for the Psalms. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because if you actually sing the Psalms, you will express great joy and you will have space to express great sadness. Yeah. So whether or not you use the Psalms exclusively, I do think some of our singing on a regular basis, not just at funerals, needs to have the rhythm of lament. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you another example. It's not just it's not just when people are dealing with illness. It's our inability to deal with social injustice, mm-hmm. race issues, stuff like that. The black church in America has a strong tradition of lament in worship. Right. Mm-hmm. And the white church doesn't. Yeah. And so the white church sees the black church and think, oh, you're just being political. Like, no, if you're close and live with this stuff, it is lamentable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet you go to God who can bring comfort and grace. So I would just say it's not just that we sing laments when we feel sad. They help us have the whole kind of, as Calvin says, the whole anatomy of emotions available to us. Right. right. I know in our in our services on Sunday mornings at the pastoral prayer time, I always have a section as I pray, just to lead those who are lamenting in the congregation. Mm -hmm. I know every Sunday there are going to be people sitting there that are lamenting either because of, and and we have a number of our members that deal like your wife with very similar types of diagnoses. We have church members whose children are prodigal, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And every week I make sure we spend time in our prayers, just crying out, acknowledging the, the the pain and the deep loss and oftentimes and and you point this out in your book the contemporary american church really struggles with that because every everything has to be up everything has to be very happy You're and, getting better <laughs> yes exactly and and oftentimes the people suffering themselves think that that's the way it should be oh yeah that if yeah, I, definitely. And, and that's where in some cases the person lamenting is able to say i need to lament but a lot of times they don't think they have a proper category for that. And so pastors need to help them say, no, actually you need to spend time in this for a while. Yeah. And that's where we need each other because if you have, and you know, we all have different personalities. Churches often reflect the personality of a pastor. Sometimes you'll have a pastor who's prone to melancholy and all right. they want the worship services to be every week are laments, <laughs> right? right? Carl right. wants to talk that, about death every that's Sunday. Carl, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, Carl and I have spent too much time with the Puritans, and that, that kind of <laughs> us, right? And, and we both have some 
Anyway, so <laughs> we both have some mm, yeah. on the other end, right? It right. can't be all lament and it can't be all just happy, right? right. Or promise. It, you need the mix because that actually reflects this side of glory. Right. And I often wonder too, you know, what role the diaconal ministries can play in the mm. church life, just um, ministering to families who are hurting and being able to come alongside in that way in the way that we disciple because you know, so often we focus on, you know, because we preach obedience and holiness, we focus a lot on behavior mm. and sometimes not so much on what's really going on inside. Mm. I do think the diaconate and even elders though, to be honest, that in different ways, they need training in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, we're all different. The way an introvert who's dealing with say chronic pain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm needs to be cared for is very different than an extrovert, sometimes almost the exact yeah. opposite. And that's, that's so hard, yeah. frustrating when you're a minister mm-hmm. because you're like, no, 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 I'm very sensitive. <laughs> and, <laughs> and sometimes actually the introvert doesn't want you there or right. something like that. And it's, mm-hmm. there's no, here's your 10 principles. Right. It's, there's no replacement for knowing someone and loving them. Right. And sometimes really the pastor is needed. Sometimes it's, it's another saint who comes alongside. Sometimes it's showing up and just not saying anything. Right. I mean, <laughs> I remember being in the hospital with Tabitha and family had gone away. It was time to rest. And uh, and someone came in and I didn't even know. To be honest, I didn't even know their name. And they brought flowers, which is very sweet. But it became clear Tabitha's situation reminded her of something she had gone through and she wanted to talk. <laughs> I was yeah. like, and really, she wanted me to minister to her, which yeah. often happens in ways they don't even realize. And that. But then I also remember my pastor, Randy Neighbors, coming. And, it, <laughs> and I literally just wept. And for like 10 minutes, and every time I would try and say a sentence, I couldn't. And then we went out to the, uh, and eventually about half an hour in, I mean, and he was great. He didn't do anything wrong. And eventually he just put his hand on me and prayed for me and left. And that's what I needed. It was beautiful. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, I didn't say more than a sentence because I couldn't. Right. So I don't know. We're all different. And, right. and it is part of learning the skills. And another area to talk about in that is one thing that surprised me as I researched and then listened to people is this idea of people who are suffering physical pain for extended periods of time tend to have a greater awareness of sin. Mm. And this, again, needs training, especially for pastors and elders, but actually anyone who cares for, you know, has pastoral care. Because we get confused, including the person in it, who starts to think, I'm suffering because of my personal sin. Right. I'm having infertility issues because I sinned and I see it again and again. What surprised me is to start to think through it and go, and we have to be so careful navigating here. On the one hand, we're tempted to say, oh, yes, you're suffering because of your sin. Well, that's a problem. Let's let's move that aside. On the other hand, we want to say, don't worry, this has nothing to do with your sin. And then we ignore that. And actually, I think both miss it. When we're suffering, we can have a greater awareness of sin, not because we're greater sinners, Mm -hmm. but because our normal defense modes are down. Right. Yeah. 
And so like a two-year-old is terrible too because they haven't developed any etiquette, right? They throw <laughs> things, they yell. And as a 45-year-old, I try not to yell and throw things. It doesn't mean my heart is necessarily better. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting at the end of life when people start to lose some of their abilities. Right. Sometimes great saints, you see stuff come out that's really troubling, right? So all that to say someone who's in extended periods of pain can't fake it. And not only in front of others, they can't fake it to themselves. And my argument is we need them. It's not that they're more sinful. It's they help us see our own situation. They're more in tune. And it's not just they're in tune with their own sin. They become in tune with kind of the brokenness of the world in a way that can help all of us. I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. In fact, I'm looking at the section of the book where where you kind of unpack this. One statement here is um, our ability to hide our sin gets compromised when we are exhausted and in constant pain, it becomes much more difficult to pretend that we are fine. And that is true. And I think the distinction that you're making there is really, really helpful because I've seen pastors err in both of those ways, either rushing in to uncover the sin that the person must be guilty of or trying to be so sensitive that they limit perhaps the sanctifying work that God is doing, you know, maybe short circuit that sanctifying work that God is doing in, um, well, let me, yeah, let me just use Let me, can I use a concrete example for some of your listeners? So in, in many of our churches, we do a practice drawn from James where if someone's dealing with physical pain, sickness, illness, we would sometimes have them come and the elders lay hands on them. And in that practice, we'll often ask if there is any sin that should be confessed. Mm. Now, I think there's good biblical warrant for that practice, and I think it can be beautiful. I'm not always sure that the people doing it have thought through it carefully because it's like I'm trying to say, I think they desperately need to let their confession be heard and to receive the words of assurance and pardon. But what we need to realize is they're so vulnerable. If you ask, is there any unconfessed sin, any of them that are thoughtful, their mind is swirling and they just feel condemned. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to be careful to walk through that with them because they will think I am dealing with this because I wasn't as good of a parent as I should have been or whatever. I mean, none of us. The only one who's not going to feel that is someone who's not in tune with their sin. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, but we need to think through it and emphasize more the pardon and think through what that looks like. Yeah. The point being is that the sufferer has a particularly sensitive conscience in that moment, perhaps Uh, Mm -hmm. a, a heightened awareness of sin that is can be helpful in some ways, but not helpful in other ways. But just a, a particularly tender conscience, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So, so I and I tell this story, but I remember a very godly couple sitting in our living room, and they had another miscarriage, and they were just exploring the depths of their souls, trying to figure out what sin was causing this. Well, (laughs) especially if you're godly, guess what they're going to find when they do that kind of introspection, you know? Lots of sin. Yeah. So, and and all of us would. And that's a very, and I'm not always sure pastorally we're attentive to that problem. Mm -hmm. Well, interestingly, 
we have two books in front of us that you wrote. And so there's this one, Embodied Hope, which I love the title of that. Um, and, and you're writing so well about suffering. But then you've written this other book, which is kind of related and also a 180, <laughs> mm. called God So Loved He Gave, Entering mm. the Movement of Divine Generosity, which is such a good book. What, what led you to write this one? It's a longer story, but I was drawn into it through an organization called Generous Giving. They wanted some consulting. And then I ended up working on a theology of thinking about generosity. And it took me to, this is a fresh way to understand grace. Yeah. Because biblically, grace is gift. And since then, which is interesting, a very significant volume by Barclay, a New Testament scholar, has been on Paul and the gift. And his fundamental argument is if you want to understand grace in Paul, you have to understand it as gift. I actually agree with that. But it's it's a longer story. But that's what started that process of research. You make such a thought-provoking statement right in the beginning. You say, unlike us, God doesn't own by keeping, but by giving. Mm. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? Yeah, the big surprise, I mean, part of what's interesting is People ask about generosity and churches always have to do generosity talks and, hey, can you give some money? <laughs> you know, uh, maybe you should tithe or something like that. And I, I was interested in the theology of it. That's really my interest. Mm -hmm. And to realize what's going on is the way God deals with the brokenness of this world in light of the fall is not by taking the world back, but by giving it, it all away, giving himself. He gives mm -hmm. his son and his spirit. And then his kingdom. Mm -hmm. So the way he gets back is by giving himself. And so what we get from God is not this thing or that thing. It's not even grace or something. We mm -hmm. get God, right. right? And and it's kind of Augustine that took me to all of this. That that's what you get. And then we use these other words to talk about the benefits of what that mm -hmm. means. But that that's very profound. This isn't about really just is. fundraising. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I. You're such a good writer, Kelly. And when That's when I very kind of you. when I read your stuff, it always connects so well to everything else I'm working on and thinking about. And as I was reading that statement, and you talk about how you know grace comes from Him and through Him and back to Him, mm -hmm. and it really made me think about the topic of purity. Even mm. you know God doesn't own by keeping, but by giving, and just our own purity being from Him, through Him. And offering back to him, there's just so many categories that you could apply from your spiritual life into that framework. Uh, I, I love that you just said that because that's a great example of how easy what you said is beautiful. And if we didn't take what you said, you can see how easily it goes astray. So you take purity mm -hmm. and people think, yes, as Christians, especially young people, we talk about their purity. Mm -hmm. And what they take it as is it's something that they have. They're pure. Right. And the way they keep it is by protecting it and uh -huh. hiding it mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And actually, the purity of the gospel is it's from God, through God, and to God, and we participate in it. So the way mm -hmm. you keep your purity is through generously sacrificing yourself for others, right? Right. <laughs> it's, it's kind of in James, this idea of how do you keep yourself pure and undefiled by this world? And he talks about orphans and widows. Well, anyone who moves from the romanticized view of orphans to actually dealing with it mm. or widows, it's messy. Mm -hmm. It's dirty. 
So the only way you stay pure is by getting in other people's dirt, you know? <laughs> so I don't know, again, yeah, I don't know good. if that makes any sense. But. Yeah, it does. It's good. Yeah. And just when I read your stuff, it, it's so easy to relate whatever it is I'm going through or researching myself or writing about myself into what you're saying. Very applicable. That's well, great. A couple of things, Kate. I mean, first of all, complimenting Amy. Please don't do it again. Don't ever <laughs> do that again. She will be unbearable. Be a long day she will be now. unbearable. Uh, maybe next time we have you on, we'll make sure she isn't around. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, I was just going to say, unlike Carl, when I write, it takes forever for me because I go through so many drafts and it's brutal. So I'm not, it's well, just a lot of work. It's not natural. And you don't, you don't write rubbish either. I tend to chat. Quick question. I mean, you and I are both... John Owen guys, we're both mm. fans of classical systematic theology as, I think, mm. properly understood. But do you think that, to some extent, where one of the ways classical systematic theology has perhaps gripped the imagination in a way that's not entirely helpful has been the attributes of God can often tend to be conceived of in rather abstract ways, where if you look at how God is described in the Old Testament, he's the God who, who loves the fatherless and the widow. And I wonder when reflecting on on the argument of, of the of this second book, whether classical systematic theology does need to be supplemented in some ways in mm. order to, to bring to the fore that active, giving, generous side of God. Mm. That's a great question. I, I can't speak for you, Carl, but part of what I think actually is so beautiful about someone like John Owen and the profound pastoral insights, for example, on his book on the triune God, which is when people ask me what book has influenced you the most and informs your life the most, it's Owen's book on mm. communion with the triune God. But part of the reason I think Owen was, and people like Thomas Goodwin were so good, is they were partly fixing the mess that many of them themselves helped create. And what I mean by that is this kind of the potential danger of abstracting God, treating him in a systematic way that doesn't have the pastoral connections, making the father seem very distant, some of that. So Owen and others, I think, experienced this, saw it in their congregations and had to carefully work through it. And I do think the way, the great insight of how, how they handled that is by making it Christ-centered. And so to get back to your question, one of my test cases was when we talk about the attributes of God, how often do we talk about the attributes of God and go on and on and on and never mention Jesus? When that happens, it's a, almost a sure sign something's gone wrong. And so we need to think through all of them. Now, you have to do it carefully. There's some careful theological moves there. But we need to talk about them in terms of, you know, where is God? God is everywhere. What does God know? His wisdom, his holiness. But if you talk about those apart from Christ, this side of the New Testament, we're in trouble. That's good. Interesting point. Yeah. Well, Kelly, what's next? Do you have something? Um, I mean, you know, this book has just been released, but that uh, <laughs> guys like you are always, you know, theologians, you're always yeah. working on the next project. What can we expect to see next? If you don't mind telling us, we won't tell anybody else. <laughs> Nobody listens to the program. Right. So just, <laughs> your secret's <laughs> safe with us. <laughs> it really is just us. And, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. relatives. Right. Um, My mom. I, I have a book that I've been working on for a long time that comes out uh, probably early next year. 
Um, it's more like a textbook out of Bloomsbury on kind of reading Christian theology in the Protestant tradition. But the books I'm starting to research and write on or have been thinking about for a long time, but finally starting to write on is I actually want to write a book on finitude. Um, and it does grow out of these experiences and stuff I've been thinking about, but trying to help people realize that finitude is not sin mm. and thinking about limits and what does it mean to be a creature? So I'm doing that. And then could you, I mean, could you just explain for our listeners and Todd what, <laughs> what finitude means just in case there's anybody yeah. out there sort of perplexed no, by that term? question. Uh, finitude just means in a sense, it just means being a creature, being dependent not being eternal. We talk about we have eternal life, but we had a beginning and we have dependency. You know, we are to fear him not who can take our body. But, you know, ultimately, finitude means dependency, Mm. means creatureliness. And I do think historically and even in the contemporary church, we can confuse being a creature with being sinful. Mm. And I find us sometimes asking for forgiveness for things that aren't really sins, They're just part of your creatureliness and even how we think about expectations and what it means to be a parent and how good should your child be at everything. I mean, I think that the practical- (laughs) This is going to be a good book. (laughs) Well, we will look forward to those things, Kelly. And thanks so much for uh, coming back on with us. It wasn't nearly all that painful, was it? I mean, uh, no, no, not and, that bad. And mean, we, not, it wasn't as bad as a dental visit. Exactly, exactly. And we treated you with a modicum of respect, did we not? Yeah. yeah Thank so. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, our guest has been uh, Kelly Capic of Covenant College, and we do encourage you to pick up a copy of his book, Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering. It's well worth the read, and we encourage you to get that. And if you will go to mortificationofspin.org, our website, you can enter a drawing to win a copy of his book, God So Loved, He Gave. And as Amy has already mentioned, it is another book that is well worth your read. And we have uh, several copies of that we'd love to give away if you'll come to our website. And, of course, as always, a reminder that we are a donor-supported podcast, and you can feel free to uh, to donate so that we can keep having on people worth listening to, like Kelly Capic, instead of just having to listen to Carl and Amy. Anyway, and me. Um, but we're so glad you joined us, everybody. And until the next time, we'll see you here at Mortification Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. 
And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... I heard somebody ask a question one time, will there be denominations in heaven? And the response, I think, was very helpful, which is, no, there won't be denominations in heaven, but we need them while we're here. We tend to live in a world where the internet and the television dominate what we think of as reality. That's a very illusory reality, really. Real reality occurs at a local level in local churches. She's a member of a church that is tiny, virtually unknown. She's having a huge impact, I'm sure, in that church. She's now having a huge impact beyond the bounds of that church because of her testimony. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. pronounce his last name again Kopic, Kapic, Kapic. I always said Kapic, but I don't. It's not. I, I'm pretty sure it's not Kapic because I. Kapic. Kapic. Kelly Kapic. Yeah. Okay. We can ask him now, Kelly. The last time we had you on, I struggled with this. It's Kapic, correct? Yeah, Kapic. Okay. 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 Um, because there was like four ways I c- I could go with that. Yeah, it's like, no it's like a long word for Todd. Two <laughs> it's, whole syllables. It's two syllables, and I, I always struggle. want to do I a long vowel. Right. So. Right. Well, it w- it was Polish. It's like Kapikowski. Oh, but okay. when my great grandparents came to Canada, oh. they cut it off, and nice. otherwise, I'd be a hockey player. So. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so just uh, Capic. I thought it was Serbia because the IC is kind of Serbian in look. Yeah, interesting. Oh. You know, honestly, that didn't even cross my mind. But uh, that's good, Carl. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Always glad to dispel your ignorance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good. I I, I enjoy a good Eastern uh, European reference every once in a while.